Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. John Fair and I now to dive into a real discussion here on the American labor economy. You can do that with Ellen Zentner, and you can particularly do that, John, because within her research notes, there's always that one chart. I remember when Ellen years ago owned the tariff part of consumer spending. It was the same uh, thing. You have a killer chart, Ellen, on the labor differential. Jobs out there, plentiful jobs, jobs hard to get. This is the most perfect American labor economy since time began, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's pretty strong. I mean, I wish it came with uh, stronger wage growth as well, but why the labor not? market's pretty strong. Why why can't we dovetail this into a happy America with wage growth? Well, Tom, because I'm an economist, I'm supposed to be the dismal scientist, so I have to we find something bad in everything. <laughs> My husband will tell you I'm really good at that. But uh, the, you know, the, look, the uh, consumer households obviously think the labor market was uh, great uh, in August, uh, based on the the results from the conference board survey. And you know, we trust households. Um, you know, if, if layoffs were rising, uh, if they weren't able to find a job when they jump into the labor market, they usually let us know. And so I think that has helped lift uh, yeah. expectations for today's number. But John, this goes to your hours work analysis and just what's in the paycheck after inflation. A lot of people are really focused on that number today, Alan. Hours worked. If you're going to see signs of weakness, you won't see it immediately in layoffs. You'll see it in hours worked. Just how important is that data point for you today, Alan? Yeah, so I think it's extremely important, actually. And, and, uh, you know, consensus is looking for it to tick back up after having ticked down last month. And and so there is going to be a lot of focus there because uh, it's it's uh, it leads other jobs data. It's coincident with uh, GDP growth in the economy. Uh, and we can see that hours worked are always sort of that pipeline of slowing that you look for in the labor market. You know, investment is down. Hours worked are down because companies will cut the hours of existing workforce first. We know that the pace of hiring has slowed. Uh, and the final thing is laying off. And we just haven't seen that. So hours worked, I look at it as just uh, the, you know, the precursor. One of the, the several precursors we see to finally getting to layoffs. Uh, and so everyone will be watching it. Alan, we were watching ISMs earlier this week. Manufacturing ISM sub-15. Non-manufacturing ISM, pretty decent. Two Americas, Alan, almost. And two global economies at the moment. One's manufacturing, the other is services, and one seemingly more important than the other at this point. Try and reconcile the differences that we're seeing in the data at the moment. Just how do you get a read on the U.S. economy? So I, I think clearly the manufacturing survey being under more pressure is is reflecting the fact that it's more beholden to what's going on with global growth. Uh, it's picking up the, the the trade risks and how companies have had to change behavior uh, around trade tensions and the uncertainty there. Uh, the fact that the service side of the economy is holding up much better uh, is encouraging because it is the lion's share of the economy and the lion's share of the labor market. So one could say, well, why do we care about manufacturing at all then? Well, we care because the leading parts of the economy sit in the manufacturing sector. Uh, And so it's only a matter of time uh, that manufacturing is weak uh, before whatever is causing that weakness starts to bleed over into the rest of the economy. So really that service side, uh, service sector jobs, consumer spending, you know, that's the shoe to drop. And for that, you need layoffs. And we just have not 
begun to see that yet. What are we doing with the overtime? I mean, one of the backstories here, folks, and it's almost anecdotal, and we talked about minimum wage increase. It means less overtime because people are paying for a new higher minimum wage. But what's the overtime or almost the worker exhaustion that we're seeing in America? Well, I think that... Uh... Well, we had been having a, a big increase in overtime hours as uh, we've seen hiring slow, and so we're trying to get more out of our existing workforce. But, but that is the the worrisome trend that we've seen now start yeah. to reverse. Right, is that we're actually cutting overtime hours, we're cutting temporary yeah, workers. Yeah, exactly. And so, again, talking about right. the precursors, you know, those are some of the precursors that we look for uh, that tell us further weakness or or right. real weakness is coming. I mean, and Ellen, I don't want to get all David Blanchflower on you. We say good morning to Dr. Blanchflower, no doubt listening up in the Hanover bubble. Uh, but, but Ellen, help me with the underemployed in America, and that starts with a dearth of full-time jobs. What's the vector right now on full-time jobs versus part-time jobs? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, part-time jobs, uh, we, we like to see uh, if people are going to work part-time, we want them to work part-time because they choose to work part-time. Uh, and in this uh, you know, post-financial crisis world, those being forced to work part-time because full-time is just not available had surged. Now, since that time, their overall numbers are higher, but the, the incidence of those working part-time, forced part-time, has come down. And it's actually back to more normal levels. I mean, this is really the point in the labor market where the unemployment rate uh, has stopped coming down, uh, it's pretty much leveling off. And and ironically, what does that tell us? It tells us the labor market is probably uh, about as tight as it was able to get uh, in this expansion uh, and can either hold in here or it can start to weaken from here. Um, but that's what the, the various uh, uh, unemployment rate measures tell me. Uh, and when I look at metrics like you're talking about the part-time for economic reasons, you know, that's telling me that there's not a whole lot more excess we can squeeze out of this labor market. And oftentimes, that's when things turn, is when they can't get any better. The jobs report 36 minutes away, several hours after that, 12.30 Eastern time. Over in Zurich, the Fed chairman, Jay Powell, having the final word ahead of the Fed's blackout. What do you think the objective is for Chairman Powell today, Alan? I think his objective is going to be to – it is a really good question. I, I think just given the, the, the evidence from the data, the balance of risk that still remain, I think there's enough there for him to maintain the easing bias that he clearly exhibited oh, at Jackson Hole. Well, Ellen, we're among okay, friends. That's, Ellen, nobody's that's listening. Fruit. Ellen, okay. they're all taking their Excuse children me, to the Tom, second district. Everybody discount. listens when I'm on your show. Oh, they you do. Excuse me. True. When Ellen comes okay. on, they turn up the volume. Then Ellen goes, they turn it back that's down. That's true. Let me reframe. But, but, look, but, but Tom, I'm trying to be realistic here, right? There are those on the Fed that are still pushing hard oh, against the need on. to cut any further. This is a very divided Fed. And the reason why it's divided, you should be happy that it's divided. When it's divided, they don't see a particular emergency to respond to. And so, it's going to be easier probably Ellen. to pull more on board with a cut, but we're not talking about 50. Come on, it's just friends. I know that's Ellen. where you're going Is he going to bring up Mr. Dudley? Is he going to bring up... No, I don't care about 50. He's got to respond to the two essays and Bloomberg Opinion by William Dudley, doesn't he? No. Oh, come on. Not. Why no, not? He's got to put a go sentence there. in there. No, you don't go there. That's The Fed has to fly above that. Right. Take the high road, okay? No, he will absolutely not... That was going to be the name of our show, by the way. Well, the high road before surveillance. Yeah, the high road. I think the, the, the name road. of your show should be Two Men Dangerously Unsupervised." 
Oh, I like that. That's Ellen Zentner should co-anchor. So wait I think that's I'm Ellen trying this. to fill the seat next to us. I think so. Next day I take off, I'm gone. Well, I'd love that. Would you fill in for Tom next time? That Tom would be goes, Ellen. Ellen. That Seriously, would be so would cool. That? that would be very cool. I come over to Bloomberg for the free food. Well, great. I'll okay, get you a coffee like and I'll get you some free food. Yeah, you know, even, you know, not the day old stuff we have to We eat. should do this. We should do this. I agree. Maybe Ellen we Zentner. should do this next Payrolls Friday. Get Ellen to come with well, us. Well, she may have a date calendar that's a little busy. She can do the morning with us. Just ahead of the number. I'll call James Gorman and see what he says. Ellen Zentner, thank you so Thanks, much. Ellen. With Morgan Stanley. What we love about our Bloomberg abilities is to find people that have cross-national experience. That would be James Mager. He is in Beijing, our deputy bureau chief there, but with really exquisite experience linking Japan to China is, well, James, let me start with an oddball question. How enthused is Japan this morning that China has moved to a more accommodative banking strategy? I think the, the Japanese economy is pretty dependent on, on China's economy. I mean, a lot of their, ex, I think about a third of their exports go to China. So anything the Chinese government or the central bank can do to stimulate yeah. demand in the economy is obviously going to be good for Japanese companies. I mean, I think, uh, you know, this is what what the PBOC has done today was pretty pretty expected. So it doesn't right. be a massive influx of stimulus, but if this does provide support to, ch- to Chinese companies, you know, that's going to obviously see more demand for Japanese industrial products, Japanese exports, and, and also, you know, demand for things like Japanese cars sold in China as well. So it's good for What's good for China is, is probably going to be pretty good. It's going to be good for Japan down the line as well. James, talk to us about the significance of the reserve requirement ratio versus, say, the one-year lending rate or the one-year deposit rate. We haven't seen those main rates being cut, I don't think, since 2015. Can you walk us through why they're choosing to use the reserve requirement ratio over some of the other benchmark rates at the PBOC? I mean, the, the 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 central banks and the governments here's main fear is is sort of stoking another housing bubble and a stock bubble. And so the the thinking is that by cutting the amount of money that banks have to hold in reserves, they'll lend more money to companies to you know to provide uh, to you know stimulate company investment. Is there evidence works. of that? There is, there is. I mean, previous cuts that happened in January and May did lead to more lending temporarily through uh, through to companies. So there was a big boom in lending in the first quarter after the cut in, that happened in January. But since then, those effects have sort of tapered off, and credit demand, uh, credit supply has been sort of tapering off. And one of the problems is obviously there's one of the problems is with less demand from the U.S. because of the trade war, there's less demand for credit from Chinese companies. They're just not wanting to borrow as much. So one problem the government and the central bank is having is even if you push down rates further, if people don't want to borrow money, they're not going to ah, borrow money no matter how cheap it is. I've heard that before. Heard that in Europe, heard that in the United <laughs> States too. So James, talk to me about whether this is a change of approach or not, because we've seen incrementally this gradual approach towards stimulus from the Chinese and policymakers and officials over there for more than 12 months now. We're trying to get our hands around whether we're about to make a shift into another gear, James. What do you see happening? I don't think it's going to be. I don't think this is a huge step up in, in their stimulus. I mean, it's going to have an effect. But I mean, one of the things I was talking about in their statement today was this is going to help in September's tax season when companies have to pay their quarterly taxes. So those are the kind of the, that's the level of that, that the central bank is yeah. kind of thinking about. It's not a massive increase in the economy. It's like helping companies get through the next quarter, making sure they have enough you know, money on right. hand to pay their taxes. So it's not really a, a, you know, a game changer in what they're trying to do. How is the trade war treated in the domestic newspapers of Beijing? 
that you and your team look at every day? I mean, Fionn Lee in Hong Kong has been fabulous about the pulse of Chinese writing in Hong Kong. How is the trade war written about domestically? Yeah, it's, it's interesting to look at what, what gets reported and what doesn't get reported. Obviously, you know, there is reporting about the trade wars. It's, it's a top, perennial topic of discussion in the media here. But, you know, when, when for example, when uh, President Trump tweeted a couple of weeks ago whether the biggest enemy of the U.S. is Jerome Powell or Xi Jinping, that just wasn't reported at all in any media in China. So there was there was... It was reported that you know he had said some stuff about China. It's yeah. reported that there had been comments, but there's no detail provided. And then when there is reporting, obviously it's going to it, it it holds to the Chinese line that China is making real efforts to try and come to an accommodation, and the U.S. is being unreasonable. So you know obviously that you can't ignore yeah. that subject. But I mean the, the the reporting that does go out, at least in the domestic media, is uh, is, is often right. skewed or or just certain things just don't don't appear at all. James, thank you so much. Thanks, for James. Staying into your Friday evening, really appreciate it. Mr. Mager is in Beijing uh, with Bloomberg uh, News. With us now, Jeffrey Rosenberg. He is with BlackRock with a synthesis here of the markets into our economy. Jeff, are we going to have an ugly 90 days, 180 days in our bond ownership? Is it going to be yield up, price down? You know, know, Tom, it's hard to say. I mean, I agree. You look at this uh, payroll report, and you know it's it's a mixed report, as you guys were just saying. You got a little bit weaker in terms of market expectations, not not horribly disappointing, uh, but you had stronger payrolls. You know, you're getting kind of a muted reaction in the market, and and that gets us, you know, more online with the Fed cutting interest rates and the expectations for the Fed cutting interest rates, that doesn't really alter that environment. Hard to see how you have significant bond losses in an environment where the Fed is basically saying they're leaning towards cutting interest rates rather than doing nothing or a different kind of environment altogether where they're raising interest rates. I I mean, we can look at this any number of ways. Household employment change is one survey, non-farm employment, another Another survey, and I'm looking all in all, it's three solid months of job development. I mean, I get the idea we're all gaming out a vector that's going to go south, but doesn't the Fed have to look at the three months moving average of whatever labor survey they want to look at? Yeah, well, the, the backstory here is that you have weakness in areas of the global economy that have been so far outside of the labor market, right? So this morning's headline and the focus of the data is on the strongest part of the economy. And the concern is, is the strongest part of the economy going to start to see some of the impact of the weaker parts? The weaker parts, of course, are global growth slowing and the trade uncertainties. And, you know, while someone might say a 130 headline that's showing some weakness, I think I think it's it's not as weak as feared, where you might have had a downside surprise of a much much weaker report. That's really the the story. Yeah. And the story 
is maintained out of this payroll report where the consumer side, particularly with this wage growth number, the consumer side, the job market side, that's still strong and holding up. And that's where you get this dissonance between, depending on which Fed official you're, you're reading a quote from, why are they cutting? What is the recession risk? Because you have cross currents in the economy. Some parts which are basically global trade manufacturing parts of the economy are showing clear slowdown, clear weakness, clear follow through from the trade uncertainty. The consumer, the household, the jobs market, that remains. Okay, so this is a Fed that has its divisions, as does any central bank. The chairman will speak today. And is he just simply going to say we need more data to get to September 18th? Well, I, I think that what he has been doing is 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 clearly leaving the window, leaving the door Agreed. open. Agreed. Strongly agree. To to not pushing back on market expectations. Market expectations are pricing for twenty five in September. Uh, the Powell had the had the the payroll report ahead of putting together his speech. Uh, he's not going to do anything to change those market yeah. expectations. He's going to try to reinforce those market expectations. The Fed doesn't want to surprise the market. Fed doesn't want to guide the market differently than twenty five. I think they're happy to deliver twenty five. There's a big debate back. Do they do 50? Do they do 25? They did 25. So they're going to do another 25 in September. That's what the market expects. And Powell doesn't want to say anything one way or the right. other to, to, to disrupt that. Futures up 11. Dow futures up uh, 96 right now. I'm going to call it um, uh, a buoyant day. And then we pulled back before the report, churned a little bit negative tone off the report. But we're bringing that back right now with futures up 11. Dow futures up 97. A lift to the market, the VIX 15.73. We're advantaged by Jeffrey Rosenberg of BlackRock. Jeffrey, I want to come back, but just one time for one more uh, question. If, if, if we can, how do you link all this into the equity markets? On a cross-asset basis, does Powell, the Powell put in place to support equities? You know, it's a, it's a really interesting development, what's going on. You know, mo- most of the time we're focused on the, the overall level of the equity market, but you get the bigger change. You know, e- e- equities had almost a five percentage reversal yesterday. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the sectoral contributions of what has been driving this market. And what has been driving this market has been a defensive equity market rotation. Equity managers have been moving into the most defensive areas of the stock market. And a lot of that is related to trade uncertainty. So when you had the rally and the overall yeah. index up, you know, one little over 1% on the easing of the trade concerns, what you really see is a much, much bigger, not a 1%, but a 5% move in relative valuations between what had been the defensive right. part where people have been hanging out uh, and the less defensive, more trade exposed sectors. And you saw a much bigger rotation away from that. So it's really these intra-sector performance that is really driving yeah. uh, the equity market, much more than the overall level. Obviously, the overall level matters, uh, and, and that's where people focus, but a lot of performance is going in in this sectoral well, uh, shifts. Jeffrey Rosenberg with us with BlackRock. Tiffany Wilding joins now from PIMCO 
looking at the economy and advising fixed income on the American economy with green on the screen to Dow up 44 points. Tiffany, what do you say to fixed income animals after the mixed report we just saw? Yeah, I think there was a little bit of something for everyone in this yep. report. Um, you know, and and I guess what I would say is is that every report, you know, can be a bit noisy. You know, so we try to look at kind of the broader trends and not any one any one given report. And I think those broader trends were confirmed in in this report and that is that labor markets are slowing. Um, you know, again trying to kind of smooth through some of the noise. Um the Yeah the uh, the average kind of moving average of payroll growth has declined down to 140k um, for private payrolls for example versus over 200 last year well said well yeah, said yeah and, yeah. and yeah. I think one important thing to remember there is too is that you know this data does get revised um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics actually just recently released its uh, preliminary what it calls benchmark revisions and and those benchmark revisions actually suggested that total payrolls in the economy are actually 500 less uh, than they were previously uh, believing. So that data doesn't get incorporated in, until uh, early next year, but that would suggest that the, you know, that six month moving average of 40 that I just suggested is maybe, you know, even less than that closer to 120. So, I mean, we are decelerating here. So Tiffany, how do you think this jobs report and just the trend that you've been uh, just discussing will play within the Federal Reserve? Um, yeah, I mean, I certainly think that, you know, it, 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 confirms, I think, that you do need uh, more accommodative monetary policy, and there is downside risk to the forecast. You know, so something that we've been very focused on is is the uh, you know, the manufacturing sector, which is in uh, in recession in the U.S. Um, in a mini recession. You know, I think the key question is the extent to that to which that spills over into the broader economy. You know, I think we are seeing early indications of that. Uh, there have been other service sectors, for example, that are tied to global trade, which has also been very weak and decelerating. Those service sectors are, are starting to uh, are starting to contract as well, you know. And then and then you have some idiosyncratic issues, you know, like retail, the retail trade industry, which continues to you know shed jobs at brick and mortar. There's issues with with malls and things like that that that's impacting structures, you know. So that that's going to be the thing that that we watch. You know, the, I guess the other important thing to note here is just you know as the economy decelerates, you're going to get slower corporate revenues, you're going to get slower profits. So really, again, the question is, what do corporations do in order to kind of readjust their inputs you know do they focus on cutting back labor or investment or both and, and how much so tiffany it's just a sense of you know i think the market obviously is discounting multiple uh fed cuts uh is that something that you think is a fair uh, discount by the market um, yeah, I, I do. Um, and the reason is, is if you just sort of maybe benchmark the recent slowing to kind of what we saw in 2016, just kind of as a broad benchmark, U.S. GDP growth slowed to 1% um, on a trailing year over year basis at that time. You know, if you look at that kind of growth shock to the U.S. economy using the Fed's own model, they they provide market participants with their own model, <clears throat> fancy name called FRB US. If you use that model to, to kind of look at what that means for the Fed funds rate, you know, it actually suggests that the Fed funds rate should be 75 basis points um, or maybe even a little bit more lower to kind of offset that shock. You know, so I think the markets are are certainly pricing in, um, you know, some some more of a dovish uh, turn from the Fed and more easing. And I think that's certainly appropriate. It's appropriate, but it comes down to business investment as well. I mean, I look through this, the, the job survey and I can see a little bit of trade analysis there 
what is your synthesis of what business investment is actually doing in America? Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think business investment could I mean, it's been it's certainly been slowing since last year. Um, and it's been actually pretty weak, but still positive the first couple of quarters this year. We actually think that it will contract, you know, outright in the third quarter and will continue to be weak in the in the back half of the year. And so, you know, what we've seen is that businesses are are slowing their investment in things like heavy equipment. Now, yeah. this is this can be tied to the, you know, the in, industrial uh, manufacturing sector. So heavy equipment and machines and things like that. The one, the one bright spot, I think, on the investment side has been intellectual property investment, technology type of investments. We saw that a lot last yeah. year. Uh, we're seeing that kind of slow as well, but I think that's one bright spot. Uh, well, the president tweeting out, Larry Codlow on Varney and Company now. For further questions, John Farrell will be with Mr. Codlow uh, here uh, in a bit in a bit as well. The president's very active today. I don't think his schedule, his schedule's open. Yeah, it's What do they call it? Can, executive time? Executive time. There's a lot of executive mm -hmm. time. I, I, I'm counting the tweets in... Uh, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I think nine, but maybe ten. The day's early. The day's early. The, the, day, is, the day is young. So, Tiffany, you know, one of the concerns out there, and I, you know, it, it kind of ebbs and flows, is the kind of the R word. Um, where does the recession uh, fit into your outlook, if at all? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's reasonable. I mean, so we would say the recession risks, you know, are elevated. Now, if you just look historically, you know, any given year kind of has a, a probability of recession of around 15%, just if you look at the historical instances of a recession. So we would say that it's elevated, you know, relative to that historical average now. And, and, and the reasons are is because, you know, like I said before, the U.S. economy, it is decelerating and we have, you know, weakness in global growth that is spilling over. There's starting to be questions around if that will spill over into into consumption. You know, so that just sets up for, a you know, a very weak and kind of fragile state. Yeah. And, and that means that any sort of other, you know, negative shock, you know, it can can push the economy over uh, into recession potentially. So, you know, that's why we would think it's elevated, you know, and I guess, again, that's why it calls for more more freezing, right. I think, um, to buffer that. Uh, Tiffany, thank you so much. Tiffany Wilding with us with PIMCO on the labor economy and it's folding in to what we see forward. Here is John Farrell with Lawrence Cudlow. Trump administration's views on a jobs report, I'm pleased to say, we're now joined on Bloomberg Television and on Bloomberg Radio by Larry Cudlow, National Economic Council Director. Larry, always great to have you with us. Let's just put the labour market together with that trade dispute. How do you frame the transmission mechanism for the trade friction right now into the labour market, into the US economy? Well, look, t today's uh, labour market story was very strong. Um, I, I, the payroll job is 130,000, but you know August is a quirky month. Uh, usually the number comes in low and then it's revised upwards. But Jonathan, I, I want to raise uh, a point that I don't think anyone's really discussed yet uh, on the air. Actually, the big story here is the blowout number in the household employment survey from which unemployment derives. That was up. 590,000. <laughs>
590,000. And that's the third straight month of outsized numbers. The average is 373,000. So 130,000 non-farm payrolls is fine. It's fine probably be revised up but the household survey at 590 now you know why is that important well first of all that's where the unemployment rate comes from the unemployment rate remains low and uh in some of these subcategories uh, african-americans african-american women uh they're rock bottom historical lows i want to make one other point jonathan in this number that i haven't seen discussed the civilian labor force increased, I got to look at my sheet to get this number right, by 571,000. Now that's like, think of it, people coming out of the woodwork to rejoin the labor force. Uh, That number has been rising steadily for the last three months. The average is 425,000. And finally, uh, labor force wages, average hourly earnings, 3.2% 3.2% for the 12 months, Jonathan. But um, for the last three months, the wage rate is above four. So let me just uh, recalibrate this. We are seeing blowout numbers in household survey. That's your small business, a leading indicator, by the way, of payrolls. Point number one, we are seeing blowout numbers of people returning to work. And they are getting paid well. Uh, Jonathan, if I may, America is working and America is getting paid and the economy is very strong, probably much stronger than all this rumor mill media narrative would suggest. These are very, very strong numbers today. So, Larry, I know you watch this program religiously, but you were probably busy about an hour ago. Mohammed Alarian came up on this program and he said that actually the participation rate looks pretty good. Average hours worked looks pretty good. Wages looks pretty solid. We just can't get away from this anxiety around the trade story, Larry. And I think people found it encouraging this week that talks are going to happen. Can you just walk me through the timeline for these talks? And I'm trying to understand whether these talks are contingent on tariffs not going up again in October. Have the Chinese asked for that? Uh, n- uh, no, not at the moment. Look, all all's that's happened, and, and it's very positive developments. Um, Secretary Mnuchin, Ambassador Lighthizer, on the phone with uh, Vice Premier Liu He, they decided that the Chinese team would, in fact, come to the U.S., That will be preceded, Jonathan, uh, a deputies meeting. Chinese deputies team will come to the U.S., I I guess, in a week or two in September to meet with our deputies. They will hammer out an agenda with key discussion points. And then I guess in early October, the precise date is yet to be set. Uh, Our principal negotiators, again, Secretary Mnuchin, Ambassador Lighthizer, will sit down with Vice Premier Liu He and his others uh, to talk about uh, uh, the deal. Look, um, I I have maintained or I have tried to maintain through a kind of long summer here that while President Trump continues his defense of the American worker and the American economy, President Trump is a very tough negotiator. I hope people appreciate that now. The other part of the story is that we're talking. And Kudlow axiom, it's always better to talk than not to talk. Uh, President Trump has indicated yep. he, would, he would take a deal as long as it's a good deal for this country. President also believes that China wants a deal. You know, coming back to the job numbers, you, you made that linkage, and it's an important linkage. Uh, our economy is humming. Uh, 
The Chinese economy is not. And we believe that they want to make a deal. And so let us see how these negotiations turn out. I don't want to forecast. I don't want to predict. All I yeah. can say is sitting down and talking is always a good thing. And the phone calls were very constructive. So, so let's see. Let's keep an open mind. Let's even try to be optimistic. So, Larry, I just want to get a bit more clarity on the process. The ministerial level talks that will happen in the coming weeks here in the United States, do you need to see anything come from them? to get to the next level, to get to the talks in October? Or do the talks in October happen regardless of what happens at a ministerial level in the coming weeks? Well, no, there are no conditions. There are no conditions. We're co they're coming to talk, and we welcome them with open arms to talk. Look, a bit of uh, context here, Jonathan. We thought we were close last May, you may recall. You and I have talked about this in the interim. We thought we were close maybe 90% there. Uh, the key issues remain on the table, right? The so-called structural issues, IP theft, forced transfer of technology, cloud technology, cyber uh, interference, and of course the trade, uh, the tariff and non-tariff barriers regarding commodities, uh, energy, agriculture, uh, and so forth. Um, we, we, we thought we were close, then the talks broke off. Uh, China pulled back for whatever reason. Uh, I'm not here to second guess it. I don't even want to go into motives. We would like, I can say this, our team would like to go back and pick up where we left off in the May uh, talks. Whether that will be possible yep. uh, remains to be seen. I, I don't want to predict it. All I know is uh, we got a new round of talks, and I think that's a very hopeful uh, develop. Larry, just to jump in, because I know we're pushed for time, do you think there's any chance that the October tariff increase could be delayed, could be pushed back? Uh, I, I don't want to speculate at all on that. That, of course, is the president's decision. Is that part of the conversation? Uh, it may be part of the conversation. There'll be a lot of things uh, as part of that conversation. I'm sure tariffs will enter into it, along with the other issues that I just mentioned a few moments ago. The reason I ask, Larry, is because there would be ministerial talks before the high-level talks happen in October, and, of course, we would have to make that decision in the next couple of weeks. Is that on the table for the ministerial-level talks in the coming weeks? I, I will simply respond by saying President Trump is, as I think we know now, a very tough and crafty negotiator, he has shown his willingness to use tariffs as part of this whole negotiating process. Uh, the best I can do is to paraphrase what he has been saying. We want to see results. We would like to see results in the near term. When we don't see results, we take additional actions. Ha on the other hand, if we do see results from these upcoming meetings, uh, then progress will be made. As best I can tell you. And um, look, I said a few moments ago from these jobs numbers today, America's working. America's producing. Our economy is quite strong. Things like productivity is rising, as well as wages and so forth. We need to protect that. We are the world's leader in technology Invention, innovation, application, yep. and new business startups. We are the world's leader. And Larry, technology, these are really important topics, and I know you're going to address them in the talks. Technology in the is our family jewels, and we must protect 
America on that. This is That's a take. the president's point of view. This is a take from China, Larry, that I want you to weigh in on. The editor of China's Global Times, viewed by many as being a mouthpiece for the Communist Party, tweeted this earlier this week, and I'd love your input on it. Personally, I think the U.S. is worn out by the trade war. It may no longer hope for crushing, crushing China's will. There's more possibility of a breakthrough between the two sides. Just how wrong is that statement, Larry? Yeah, well, my response to that is never underestimate, never underestimate the strength of this country or the strength of this president. President Trump is doing what presidents have not done in the last 20, 25 years. He sees the unfair trading practices. He wants to protect our country, our workforce, our technology, our farmers, whatever. He is not going to relent. And by the way, in sheer political terms, I think the president has enormous support with respect to a rebalance and a big change in our relationship with China. Jonathan, this is an economic issue. This is a technology issue. This is a fair trade issue. This is a national security issue. This is also a human rights issue. So those people in China or any place else who underestimate the strength and determination of the United States, they are making a very, very big mistake. Larry Kudlow, I'd love a final word from you on the Federal Reserve, if you may. The former New York Fed president, Bill Dudley, weighed in an opinion piece in the last couple of weeks and was quite controversial about the Fed's role, enabling the president to go harder on trade. Larry, I've been one to defend the Federal Reserve's independence. I came down quite hard on that piece and was very critical of it. The president then again tweeted once more about where did I find this Jerome guy? Just to be balanced here, Larry, I have to say it's incredibly unhelpful to go after the Fed in this way. Larry, just how complex is it right now? And the conversations you're having personally, is this something you're pushing back on in the White House? No, look, <laughs> the president has made his views clear. He's very outspoken. He's very well informed. Uh, our view has always been that the monetary policy seven rate hikes in the last two years, nine rate hikes, uh, way too tight. We've had severe monetary headwinds. You know, it's a wonder we're growing at two and a half to three percent with these monetary headwinds. Okay, that's one key point. With respect to Bill Dudley, whom I have known for many years, Bill Dudley went over the cliff. What Bill Dudley's statement suggested is that the Federal Reserve should adopt a monetary policy geared towards defeating President Trump in 2020. Now, that is the most politicized statement I have ever heard, and the current Federal Reserve Board uh, disavowed it, walked away from it, which is a good thing. Mr. Dudley stepped over the cliff. He's been criticized heavily by Democrats, uh, like my friend Larry Summers, for example, I will weigh in on that criticism. The idea that you conduct monetary policy towards somehow influencing an election outcome is just utter nonsense. The Fed is an independent agency. We've always said that. But then again, we have our opinions about the state of monetary policy. Market is telling us 
The Fed's going to lower rates in September and October. I think that's a good thing. We shouldn't have an inverted yield curve. We should normalize that. And I think if we get to a normal position, it will actually help the economy get back above 3%. Dudley, who then wrote a second article on Bloomberg, which did not recant the first article, is trying to politicize this election and lead some sort of anti-Trump, you know, the revolution or whatever the heck it's called. That is nonsense. He is so far off the charts. He is over the cliff. He has no support, I hope. But in any event, in any event, the Fed is professional. They are independent. They're going to do what I think they need to do. And that's going to help the economy. And again, I go back to today's job numbers. America is working. Yeah. And American workers are coming back into the labor force. They're getting paid. They're spending. They're saving. They're producing. We're in pretty darn good shape, if you ask me. Larry, final question for you, because Bill Dudley did clarify that piece, as you mentioned. He tried to walk it back somewhat. That criticism remains. But I'm trying to understand the difference between what Larry Kudlow is pushing back on and what Larry Kudlow and the White House is doing right now with regards to respecting the political independence from the Federal Reserve. There's not a big gap between that piece and what you guys are pushing for. Oh, I, I just couldn't disagree more with respect, Jonathan. I'm sorry. There's no moral equivalence between the two. We have never suggested that Fed policy should be geared towards elections. What we have suggested is that Fed policy should be geared towards maximum economic prosperity. And we have noted many times there is no inflation. I mean, the inflation break even, as you yourself know as well as anybody, is down around one, one and a quarter percent, which is what Rich Clarida, vice chair, has said and what the chairman has said. That's a different issue. We want maximum prosperity, job creation and stay with the low inflation. We're not out there talking about a campaign. No, Larry, I agree with that. You're not talking about 2020. Dudley linked but, it. Dudley linked it specifically the to the election, Jonathan. The Federal Reserve. That is an, Dudley linked it I agree. specifically to the election. Larry, he did. That is a new low. I agree. My, and he's a, a former senior Fed official. And look, the Federal Reserve Board disavowed properly so and i can tell you internally from my conversations they were horrified larry you'll get zero pushback from me on that point but where i do see a link is the president himself has linked federal reserve policy to the democratic party that came before him and suggested that the fed kept policy easy for the democrats that's making the political link is it not no look the president's been very consistent and I my, with my wholehearted support, I mean, I talk to him almost every day on this and other matters. Um, we want to remove obstacles to economic growth. We want to remove obstacles to economic growth. An inverted yield curve and a premature hiking of interest rates last year and maybe the year before generated an obstacle to economic growth. Let's remove that obstacle, and you'll see this economy with low taxes, low regulations, uh, free trade reforms. Look, USMCA, 
Japan, Europe, we're making tremendous gains on trade while we protect America with respect to China. Those are the factors that will lead to 3 to 4% economic growth and keep this job story as strong as possible. Those are the issues. This is geared to help this country. This is not just about an election. It never is about an election. There's a vision here, Jonathan. There's a vision here. The president's vision has always been liberate the economy from unnecessary regulations and taxes, give us a level playing field, give us cheap and plentiful energy, let us use our economic resources, let us use our God-given talents, let us reward success, not punish it. That isn't a vision just for a year or two. That's a vision that would keep this country on a high trajectory for the next 20 years, the next 40 years, the next several generations. This is a transformational president, and I think the early returns are pretty darn good. Not everyone agrees with me. I respect that, but that's his reality. This other chap, Dudley, he's playing like a party hack on precinct politics for the next election. That is nonsense. That is utter nonsense. Never Look, I, my first job at the New York Fed in open market operations was 1973. So I've been watching this story for, well, I don't know, whatever it is, almost 50 years. I've never seen anything like the Dudley statement. There is no excuse or defense for it. Hey, Larry, we've got to leave it there. Apparently, I've had two calls from D.C. and I've got to let you go. Larry Kudlow, always appreciate and respect your efforts to articulate the views from the White House every first Friday of the month following the payrolls report. Larry Kudlow there, the National Economic Council Director, joining us from Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.